Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, Matthew 28, last chapter of the first book of the New Testament. While you're turning there, let me just say how much I love to see the orange and black up front. <laughs> you have no idea how encouraging that is to me. So. Matthew, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, an eyewitness of the things of which he writes, and in particular, what, what, what he writes here, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Would you pray again briefly with me? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and, and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. A little uh, church history for you to begin. In the 1780s, there was a young shoemaker by trade who was also serving as, as pastor of this small Baptist church in England. And he read The Last Voyage of Captain Cook. And it just captured his imagination, maybe the way that going and watching Raiders of the Lost Ark would, would capture people's attention now. But this was true story, chronicles of, this, of, of Cook's final journey to the Pacific. And whereas most people of his age, they read the book as a thrilling adventure story, William Carey was captured by the realization that there were entire peoples in the world who had never heard the good news of salvation in Christ. Now, while he's reading The Last Voyage of Captain Cook, he had been meditating upon Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And there was an urgent question then that gripped this young pastor, shoemaker's heart. The verse was very straightforward. When Jesus calls his sheep, they will come. They will heed the summons. But how can they heed that summons? How, how can they come to Jesus if they cannot hear his voice? And so Carrie thought, how, how can this be? And he thought, I know. I can be the voice of the shepherd. I can go. I can go. I can be the voice of Christ. And it, it, it was this enormous privilege to him. He could be the voice of the shepherd. He could be the one who takes the gospel to those who had never heard it, and that would enable them to respond to their Lord and their maker, their, their savior. At, at the time, however, there was no obvious path for going overseas. There was no uh, church denominational mission societies. Matter of fact, there was absolute disinterest in denominational mission societies. When this young pastor spoke of this call that he really felt that he had from God to go overseas, he, he spoke of it to a, to a fellowship of, of other more experienced pastors. He was told in that meeting very infamously, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. And uh, the, the burden of this sermon is going to say, listen to your local church, but in this case, I'm glad that Kerry did not do that. Uh, he, he thought otherwise. He, he, he famously wrote, if it be the duty of all men to believe the gospel, then it be the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all nations. And so, so William Carey became the father, what we now look back on as the, of the modern missions movement that, that changed 
uh, the world, changed the, the church, was used powerfully of God. Carrie was responding to the call of God to take part in God's plan to redeem men and women of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's a, it's a common theme through the scriptures. Actually, I would say that it's the dominant theme of the scriptures, the plot to the drama of redemptive history. And after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the passage that we just read, Jesus commissioned his disciples to take the gospel to the nations, that is, to make other disciples. And that passage rightly called by the church, not not by Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I'm about to give you the great commission, bum, 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 you know, thunder and lightning and all this. He's just talking with them. But we look back on it, and and we rightly call it the Great Commission, and it has, with varying degrees of fervency and varying degrees of faithfulness, it has guided the church ever since. And it serves as the mission statement of of Gresham Bible Church, and and it ought to. I know a lot of times churches will get together, their church plants will say, what's our mission statement going to be? And I think, what what a total waste of time. Jesus gave us the mission statement, right? It's like, like, take the gospel to the nations, make make disciples. And and so we are picking up now, actually we're, we're almost entirely done with a series on distinctives. There are eight distinctives of Gresham Bible Church. This is the eighth one. Um, and, and it's all about multiplication. That's, that's the driving force, the guiding mission of Gresham Bible Church, and, and rightly so. And as with all of these distinctives of GBC, as we get up here, it's a combination of, of both description, this is who we are, and also aspiration, this is who we want to be, right? And, and that's the case here. I'm going to read that distinctive to you. Our vision isn't to grow big, but wide. We aim to be a mid-sized church with one worship service. And so this is not like a call to mediocrity or a call to like not do great things for the Lord or anything like that. There's, there's, a, there's actually a purpose for this. And it's in that distinctive, not because we think small is better, but because of the nature of the mission Jesus has commissioned us with. Our leaders are committed to reproducing themselves, and our missional aim is to raise up leaders of all kinds plant churches everywhere, and send out foreign missionaries to bring the gospel to the unengaged and unreached peoples across the globe. So that is descriptive, and it's also aspirational. And, and, and today, what, what I want to do is work through Matthew 28, and, and we're going to focus probably a little bit more on the aspirational part of this quite frankly. We're not going to talk about only having one service. I might mention that. We, we're, we're going to talk mostly about church planning, but then uh, what GBC needs to do to, to live into this desire, this vision of, of supporting, sending out missionaries around the world. If you're here this morning and you think, great, I just dropped in on like a, like a group meeting where they're trying to figure out who they are. Maybe you're not a Christian. Uh, we are going to look at God's Word, though, primarily. I'm not going to exegete the distinctive this morning, preach it. We're going we're to go from Matthew 28, and, and I would like to invite you in the next half hour or so, consider the urgency with which Jesus commanded his followers to take his gospel message to the nations. Apparently, Jesus was really not concerned about cultural boundaries like this group of Jewish disciples should like stay in their lane and just talk to other Jewish people. No, Jesus was convinced that he had a call on every person's life, a claim on every person's life, regardless of ethnic background. He actually saw himself as the Lord of everybody. And if that's the case... If Jesus was convinced that everybody needs to hear and respond to the good news of what he had and continued to do and will do, then everybody needs to hear and respond. And if that's the case, what should your response to the gospel be this morning? For the rest of us, Christians, members of of GBC, I would like for you to consider Jesus' great commission. And ask yourself this, very simply, how faithful have you been, how faithful have we been to that summons?
All right, so let's, let's go through and look at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20 again. The context, of course, is at the end of Jesus' first Advent ministry. He has lived and taught on the kingdom of God. He was unjustly put to death at the hands of sinful men. Uh, but God used that death to reconcile the world to himself and to demonstrate the righteousness of Christ and his power over death. God raised him mightily from the dead. And, and when we pick up the story here, Jesus is, is <laughs> the resurrected Christ, and he's talking to his disciples. And, and we note here, it, it starts, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And, and I don't know if, if, if you read that verse and you go, man, that 11 that's kind of a bummer of a number. It really should be 12. It, it, we're, we're just reminded right off the bat of betrayal. And uh, almost, not really, but it, it seems like there's failure there. Of course, we know that that was anticipated. It was prophesied, but it's still hard. And so it, I, I just want to note the context here, that Jesus' great commission is given in the context, yes, of great hope, resurrection, but also some disappointment. There's just 11 there's not 12. The 12th disciple had, had betrayed Christ and then in the aftermath of everything had taken his own life. We read there, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What, what, a, what a strange combination even that is, right? Uh, we're, we're told here, when the disciples saw Jesus, they respond in worship. Now, we could read verse 17 as just a simple record of what took place. The already bewildered disciples, their heads are spinning, they spy the resurrected Lord, they fall to the ground in worship, at which point Jesus just happens to commission them. Boy, this would be a good time for me to tell them what to do, right? I've got them right in the palm of my hands, right? Th th this will work well. We could, we could read it that way. But I don't think that's the case. So the phrasing of the verse, I think, makes very clear that Jesus' commissioning of his disciples is directly linked to the narrative to their worship of him. It's not accidental that the Great Commission comes in the context of worship. Therefore, obedience, I would argue, to the Great Commission is first and foremost an act of worship. A church that truly worships Jesus Christ will be concerned to obey his commands to make disciples of the nations. And a church that's not concerned with missions or does not give priority to it is not obeying. And I would suspect that's probably not a church that is worshiping the Lord as it should. Worship and missions go together. More on that here in a moment. I am going to come back to the doubting part, though. But just, just remember, some of them doubted. We'll return to that. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has not told them what to do yet. He just makes note of the fact that he is, quite literally, the Lord of the cosmos. He establishes his authority by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And heaven and earth throughout the Bible, remember in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth function as, as what we, I'm going to geek out on you here for a second. It's, it's, it functions as what we call a merism. It, it's like the alpha and the omega, from A to Z. The point is the, the two extremes and everything in between. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he means literally all authority, period. All authority belongs to Christ. And that power comes from God. It is not contrived. It is not manipulated. Nothing like that. It's not sourced in, in human machinations or plans or schemes, and it certainly is not demonically granted. Remember Satan in one of the temptations offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory if Jesus would fall down and worship him. And of course, Jesus refuses Satan at that point because he knows his destiny is to go to the cross, to rise, and to be legitimately, robustly granted 
all authority everywhere. So all authority in heaven and earth is clearly divine authority. It can be granted only by God, God the Father. And hundreds of years earlier, Daniel, the prophet, had had foresaw the day when one like a son of man was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, his rule, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And I guess I I just want to pause right there for a moment and think, uh, how many of you was it hard to get out of bed and come to the worship service this morning? How many of you like barely got your kids here dressed and kind of on time? And and yet what I I want to give you a picture of is is Jesus' statement that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he said. We're gathered here because there is something in us, something some, some divine calling that originated with God that opens our eyes to the lordship and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And, and that's why we are gathered here as a body to worship him. By, by, I know you had plenty of maybe more entertaining things that you could, I mean, I'm preaching, there's way more entertaining, way more entertaining things that could happen this morning, and yet you came here because there was something in you that was convinced that Jesus is more beautiful, that Jesus is more majestic, that Jesus is more awesome, Jesus is all of that. And, and the fact that you gather because you're convinced of that is encouraging to me and encouraging to the person next to you because, yeah, Jesus is worth it. He is totally worth it. Every single thing that we're going to talk about here today is grounded in, for lack of a better term, the sheer awesomeness of Jesus, the awesomeness of Christ. And so it's at this point then that Jesus moves from authority to mission and it leads us to conclude that it It is the authority of Jesus that makes mission possible. Jesus doesn't say, go and do the very best that you can to make disciples of all nations, and I'll throw you a bone when I can, right? I'll I'll, I'll give you a helping hand if I can spare it in the moment, right? No, he begins with a statement, literally all authority everywhere belongs to me. I am the Lord of the cosmos, the destinies of all people I hold in my hand. All power, all rule, all glory belongs to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. Missionaries the churches that send them, we should be confident that wherever the missionary is sent, whether it's overseas, whether it's next door, whether it's at the high school, whatever, the Lord Jesus Christ exercises absolute authority in that exact place. The authority granted Jesus is not limited to the spiritual realm, but it includes all power on earth as well. There is no place that the Lord will send one of his heralds that his sovereign hand does not reach. And that's how Jesus begins. That's the foundation. A statement of sheer confidence in himself. And it's only at that point that he gives the commands. Verse 19 make disciples. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And there is so much that could be said here, and I'm sure your favorite part of this passage I will not hit on, right? Uh, So prepare to be disappointed in that regard. But I, I have a few observations to make here. One, the command is clear, make disciples. And then the manner of disciple-making is explained by, again, we're going to geek out a little bit here, three participles that in turn take on the mood of the verb, the mood. It's a, it's a command. It's a command. And so they themselves are commands. So, so the one clear command, if you were to parse it, make disciples. But then there's these three participles, go, baptize, teach. And all of them take on the mood, this is basic grammar, of that verb. 
So they're all commands. That was a long way of saying, go is a command, baptize is a command, and teach is a command. First, Jesus' mandate is not to evangelize, but to make disciples. And now, evangelism is absolutely a necessary step on the way, but it's only that, a necessary, but on its own, incomplete step on the way to obeying Jesus' command. A local church's missions program, or missions at GBC, we can't think, we just got to go evangelize. That's it. No. (laughs) Jesus didn't say, go evangelize. He said, make disciples. And the making of disciples is prescribed by Jesus as going and baptizing and teaching. And this manner of making disciples is not merely a good idea or one option among many, but it's the command given by the one who has just said, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me, therefore go do this and do it this way. Do it this way. So when we here at GBC think about our mission strategy, we have to give consideration to that mandate. Now, we might not be able to cover all aspects of disciple-making equally well. And maybe there are some missionaries that go out. Actually, there's no missionary who does everything perfectly. But some missionaries are more gifted in one area than another. And, and there could be lack of resources and specialization that, that, that's just a given, right? We understand that. But that should never be used as an excuse to ignore the Lord's clear imperative to make disciples and make them in this way. Go, baptize, teach. The end goal of our missions program should not ever be anything less than the multiplication of disciples of Jesus. Which then raises a question. Okay, well, what is a disciple? Three things. A disciple, very simply, is a learner. A learner. We study the way of Jesus. We're doing it right now, right? We are engaged in discipleship at this very moment. We're learning the way of Jesus. We pay attention to his teaching. We learn from him. A disciple is also a follower of Jesus. We go where Jesus went. We do what Jesus did. We imitate him. We trace our lives along the outline of his own life. And of course, we we obey him as we follow Jesus. You, You can't say you're a disciple of Jesus if you don't obey Jesus. That would be like a a rather aberrant kind of disciple. <laughs> I'm a disciple of, of Jesus. I just don't care what he has to say about anything. It has no impact on my life at all. You're talking about the kind of discipleship that is meaningless at that point, right? So a, a, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. So therefore, this is my conclusion, <laughs> a disciple is a Christian, and a Christian is a disciple, The Bible does not differentiate between Christians and disciples. If you are a Christian, then you are a disciple. It's it's that simple. Well, what about those carnal Christians out there? Uh, That is not anything anyone should aspire to be. I don't even know if they technically exist, a carnal Christian. There are varying degrees of faithfulness. There are varying degrees of obedience, to be sure. But if you are a person who's like, you know what? I walked the aisle one day. I went forward. I got baptized. But I'm really not interested in following Jesus. I'm going to be one of those Christians who gets into heaven by the skin of my teeth. And yeah, I might regret loss of reward or something like that later on. But right now, it's just not worth it. I would, if, if that's where you see yourself, I would ask you to consider this. You're playing a dangerous game, and you're fooling yourself. And at some point, you're going to have to crack a Bible and see that, disciples of, that Christians are disciples, and disciples are Christians. Don't play a game of deciding what of Jesus you're going to obey and what of Jesus you're not. Okay, so that's, let's look at some of these commands. Go. Second, Jesus commands his disciples to go. I've heard plenty of preachers and their zeal to emphasize the command to make disciples that they teach that because going is really the participle, it probably should be translated, as you happen to be going, make disciples. The important thing is make disciples. It doesn't really matter if you go. 
No, as I said, uh, that's, that's not how we do translation. That's not how we do grammar. And there's a reason why every legitimate English translation of the Bible, and there are a lot of them, they all say, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. It's the correct way to translate the sentence. And so it, it won't do for a church to ignore the nations and focus on making disciples just in your immediate neighborhood. Each local church, GBC is no exception, we have to have a vision as broad as Jesus' command to us, the nations. Now, obviously, every church may not be able to send a missionary from its own ranks overseas, but each church can invest the resources entrusted to it by the Lord to partner in sending someone to the nations. And besides, missions allocation is never a zero-sum game. When we at GBC are serious about reaching the nations, and I'm not saying that we're not, but, but, but when we act on that, I suspect we'll find that reaching our neighbors will take on an urgency not yet felt. And in my experience, even the smallest churches nourished on a diet of faithful preaching regarding the mandate to go, will surprisingly find that the Lord has called some from their midst to go. So here at GBC, we, we support the Mormances in Slovenia. We support uh, Susa, summer in the USA. That's, that's a way to go to the nations without ever actually going, right? The nations are brought to us, hosting a Basque team in your home for the summer. So we're doing things but let's aspire to do better. Let's aspire to do better. Baptize. The mandate to make disciples by baptizing and teaching involves the multiplication of churches. And baptism, as we'll find out next week, a whole sermon on baptism next week. It's an ordinance given to the church for our initiation into the Christian faith and the church. And it's instructive that Jesus ordered baptism before teaching in the disciple-making process. So I believe here that baptism is standing here, a part substituted for the whole. When Jesus says baptize, he's talking about evangelizing, calling people to repent and believe the gospel, followed by their initiation into the body of Christ through baptism. Repent, believe, get baptized. And so that would be my invitation to anyone here who has, who has not yet repented and believed and been baptized. Consider that. Consider that strongly. It's the most important thing that you'll ever do in your entire life. And we have sung the gospel and we have prayed the gospel and I've rehearsed a bit of the gospel here today. If you have not yet repented, believed, and been baptized, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about that. And finally, teach. The work of disciple-making then moves to teaching teaching them to obey everything the Lord commands his followers. And, and the order here can't be confused. You enter the church, and then, then you learn the way of Jesus. And so at, at GBC, we, we, we aspire to prioritize this. And in just a moment, we're going to turn to the book of Acts and Paul's missionary journeys, and we're going to find that the priority of the local church mission should be the planting of other churches, where teaching and discipling can effectively and faithfully take place. So that's the Great Commission. We will return at the very end to Jesus' final words of promising his presence with us. But what I'd like to do now is, in, in terms of just aspiration, let's, let's take a look at some of the missionary journeys in the book of Acts very briefly. And I have like eight, seven or eight, not nine, but some observations to make just on some of the early church's missions activity in response to Jesus's great commission here. At, at GBC, our emphasis is going to be on evangelism and discipleship. And our, our mission is simple, make disciples. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote to Timothy. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So multiplication is the key. 
maybe if you're like my age or older, you remember the uh, Fabergé shampoo commercials? I told two friends and they told two friends and so on and so on before long, like the screen is just full of like the same person repeating those words. Does, that, does, does anybody remember that? I'm the only person who grew up in the 80s. Okay, all right, that's fine, that's fine. Um, one day you'll be able to watch that commercial on videotape in heaven and it will be worth it for you. Good. Okay, so multiplication is the key. Multiplication is the key. And it has to do with just multiplying your life and the life of someone else. Um, it, it, it might not seem like the most efficient way. Like, wouldn't it be better if God just wrote his name in the stars? But no, he said, um, what you know, pass on to other people and teach them how to pass it on. And then it multiplies. So th- that's the logic there. We um, just, I, I said I'd say a few words about the single service thing before I launch into the book of Acts. Our aspiration is not to be so large that we have multiple services. Now, now, why would we think that? You might think, well, you're just saying, hey, the way we are, that's the way we want to be. Uh, We're all here in one service. Um, There is some thinking that has gone into that. It might be, it might be that at some point we have to go to two services, but our conviction is that if you have two services, then you kind of have two churches. And it's important for us to fellowship together and know one another and be known by each other. And, And we would rather pour our energy into planting another church by sending some people off than in just multiplying the number of services that we have. That's, just, that's, a, that's a conviction. It's not a judgment on, on other churches. And, 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 and we want to plant churches. Jesus' mission strategy is not awesome internet presentation, massive rallies or campaigns. Jesus' strategy for the making of disciples, from evangelism to maturing people in the faith, is church planting. Worldwide, and has always been this way, the most effective evangelism strategy out there, and it's this way in America too, is planting churches. That's the best way to reach people with the gospel. Plant churches. All right, so let's talk about missions. Turn over the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to make some observations. And you think, and here, here come the 12 points, and I've got 10 minutes to do it. Here we go. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is with his disciples, and he tells them this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended. It tells us this. Missions is first and foremost about God, about what God does through the Holy Spirit, and only secondarily about what we do. Now, the emphasis on the Holy Spirit here should come as no surprise to anyone who has read the Gospels. Jesus' entire first Advent ministry was characterized by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in his life. When Peter preached to people who weren't quite sure about who Jesus was, this is how Peter chose to explain Jesus. God anointed or christened or Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's in Acts chapter 10 when Peter was preaching to Cornelius and the Gentiles. Jesus had promised, and we'll see this in just a moment, at the end of Matthew 28, he promised that he would attend his disciples wherever they went with his own presence. And I take it that when he sent the Holy Spirit, as he's promising in Acts chapter 1, that he's going to do shortly after he ascends, I take it that that's the way that Jesus kept his promise, the sending of the Holy Spirit. This is his abiding presence with us. And it's, it is significant in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses It's significant that Jesus talks about what he will do for the disciples first. I will send the Holy Spirit. And then of what the disciples, not what they will do, but what they will become. He didn't say you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will have to witness for me. He said, no, no, it's you will be my witnesses. I said earlier that a a disciple is a Christian. 
Well, a disciple is a witness. A Christian is a witness as well. It's what Jesus has made you into. Being a witness for Jesus is first and foremost about what Jesus makes us through the presence of the Spirit, and only secondarily about our decisions, our courage, our failures, our efforts, our strategies. Refusing to witness for Jesus is a denial of what Jesus has made us to be regardless of what we think our gifting may or may not be. If you are a Christian, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has made you a witness, period. It's who you are. It's who you are. Observation chapter two, or number two, not chapter, observation two, the Holy Spirit empowers the church to witness. The Holy Spirit does. It's the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of new covenant promises that constitutes the people of God as the church. We're going to see that in just a moment at Pentecost. The roles of the Holy Spirit in salvation in the church, both individually and corporately as a church. They're crucial, absolutely vital. But this first mention in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit's work, notice it's empowerment for witness. Jesus sent the Spirit in fulfillment of lots of promises. You can read about them in John chapter 14, 15, 16, especially because Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit more than anybody in the entire Bible did. The Holy Spirit does a lot of stuff, but the first time he mentions them in the book of Acts, the first mention of the Spirit, it's empowerment for witness. And that's going to manifest itself almost immediately when we get to Acts chapter 2. Also, just a really quick word. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So is this that how our mission strategy has to be? We're here in Gresham, so Gresham is our Jerusalem, and Judea would be, I don't know, East County, and then... Portland would be Samaria. Portland's more like Babylon, but it's more like Samaria. And then, and then to the ends of the earth, that, that would be someplace else. From a biblical theological perspective, Gresham is the ends of the earth. It's, it's the ends of the earth. We're already here, right? We're already here. And the fact that you're here right now as a follower of Jesus Christ gives testimony to the fact that, hey, Jesus did what he said he was going to do. Those original disciples were in Jerusalem, And they took the gospel to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And 2,000 years later, here we are. That should give us some confidence. Here we are at the biblical theological ends of the world. And we're strategizing how can we keep that thing going. That should be really encouraging. All right. Acts Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. I'm not going to read it all to you, the sermon on there. Uh, But you know that the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples in fulfillment of Jesus' promise. And immediately what happens is they step outside and they get to start preaching. It's, It's a pretty remarkable chapter, the birth of the church. It should come as no surprise that when the Spirit filled the apostles, the first people to hear the gospel were not just Jews from Jerusalem, but were, chapter 2, verse 5, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So here's observation three. The mission field is the nations. The mission field is the nations. We're told in Acts chapter 2, that very first Christian sermon ever preached, right, There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonged to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, in the audience, right outside the door, lots of places. Roughly speaking, if we were to map all that out, the list runs from the south and east of Jerusalem to the west and the north, which is kind of how the whole book of Acts functions as well. It starts south and east, and it moves north and west, ending in the book of Rome, in the, in the nation of Rome. Think on it. The disciples receive the Spirit of God. They step out of their house to find that the nations are already gathered at the doorstep. They're already right there. Now, this, in, this does not mean that Acts 1-8 was fulfilled at that moment, and so we need to do nothing. But the Pentecost proclamation of Peter surely serves to foreshadow Jesus' plan to take the gospel to the nations, even if the apostles didn't quite understand what take the gospel to the nations actually meant. It took a little kick in the pants to get them going. But Jesus can do that, right? He's got all authority and stuff. He, he He can do that, and he did. So when the Christians were scattered from Jerusalem due to persecution, 
Following the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, many of them returned to their own homes, and what did they do? They took the gospel with them. Why? Because they are witnesses. Acts 13 and 14, Paul's first missionary journey. Paul moves center stage, and I want you to notice the priority given to the church. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So once again, we return to where we started. Worship and missions are inextricably tied together. The call for Paul and Barnabas comes in the context of the gathered body in worship. Mission is grounded in God's command and the response of the church. The Spirit directs, and it's the church that obeys. But notice they're gathered there, they're worshiping, they're praying. John Piper very famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't, right? One day there will be no more missions because worship will be everywhere, but we take the gospel where worship doesn't exist because Jesus is worthy of worship, right? And, it's, and, and Paul and Barnabas, the very first missionary journey in the book of Acts, it's born in the context of the church gathering and worshiping together. Observation number five, the call comes by the Spirit to the church, and the church discerns the call. And this is a mind-bender when we consider who did the church in Antioch send out? Paul. Paul. It's like the greatest Christian ever, except for Jesus Christ. And you would expect it, you would expect it to go this way. Guys, I'm Paul. I've been commissioned by Jesus. Open up your checkbook and send me out. That's what you would expect. But it doesn't come that way, does it? Paul submits himself to the authority of the local church in Antioch, and they discern his call, and they send him out. Paul and Bar- now, now, Paul knew that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He knew that Jesus was going to send him out, but he waited on the timing of the Spirit of God given to the local churches before he went. Observation six, the church at Antioch sent their best. If we were to go back a couple chapters, we'd see that Paul and Barnabas had been at that church in Antioch for about a year or so, and I'm guessing Paul was a pretty good teacher And I'm also guessing that there were probably a ton of reasons that the church in Antioch could have said, no, Paul, you'd be better off here. We'll send someone else. But I'm guessing that the church in Antioch literally sent the best that they had. Paul, probably in the history of the church, as far as I know, the greatest missionary, pastor, evangelist that Jesus has ever raised up. And Antioch, the church in Antioch said, Lord, if it's your will, you can send the very best that we have. And that is very hard to read because I don't want to send people away. I don't want in my my, my human heart, I don't want my kids, my grandkids, to go to the other side of the world. But the church in Antioch models for us a willingness to send the best that they had because Jesus is worth it. And I know in your heart of hearts, you recognize that as well. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this church raised up and sent out the very best that we have? And I know this, it will hurt but it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Observation seven. If we skip ahead to chapter 14, at the end of that first missionary journey, isn't it interesting that Paul and Barnabas, I mean, again, this is Paul called by Jesus Christ himself, right? That when they finished their missionary journey, what did they do? They go back to Antioch and they give a report because they were accountable to that church in Antioch. The church directed the missionaries and held them accountable. It was in Antioch 
that Paul and Barnabas had been, quote, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And I take it that there was a plan put in place by the church in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas were faithful in fulfilling it. They didn't just expend energy. They did not just work and accomplish things. They fulfilled and completed a work. And then they came back. They went back to the church that had sent them and said, this is what the Lord did through us, through you. They were submitted to the local church in Antioch. And there's kind of a two-way street going on here. You sense the excitement of the missionaries to tell everything that the Lord had done through them. And that excitement had to be mutual because the two missionaries stayed for a while in Antioch, we're told. A church that they were knit into, a church that sent them, prayed for them, supported them, and then cared for them. And that would be another good reason for why we should raise up and send out our own missionaries so when they come back, we get to benefit jealously, we get to benefit. We don't have to share them with all the other churches that are nickel and diming them. So they're on, the, you know, on their sabbatical going in, in to all 52 churches that are sending them 100 bucks a month. Let's raise up and send out and support as best we can so that when, when they come back, we can share because we're generous, but we don't have to because they're accountable to us and we're accountable to them. And then observation eight, the work of the missionaries, evangelism, and church planning. Evangelism clearly, but church planning. If we were to go back in chapter 14, verse 23, notice that when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there's spiritual care there. They're planting and establishing churches and establishing leadership, shepherding role in the life of that church. This tells us that missions should be primarily about gospel proclamation. It might not be just that, but it always has to be that. Now, that might seem obvious. Missions is about telling people about Jesus, right? But it's become apparent that it's not obvious. When I speak at missions conferences, I usually ask this question. How many missionaries actively involved in frontline evangelism and church planning are supported by your church? How many mission dollars go to administration, support personnel, social justice causes? All of those are very, very important. But look at your budget. Your budget is like a blueprint for your heart. I realize administration support are necessary for missions of any sort to take place. Ironically, successful field missionaries are often promoted off the field and into administrative roles. I also believe that social justice efforts are an integral part of the gospel of the kingdom and ought not to be divorced from evangelism and church planting. They should go together. We are called to be word and deed ambassadors of the kingdom, following the examples and the directives given by Jesus. However, all of the giving and sending trends in North American mission agencies are pretty revealing. Over the last 20 years, missions giving in North America is increasingly tilting towards justice causes. American agencies focused on evangelism discipleship saw combined income grow by 2.7% over a a recent four-year period. During that same period, 74.3% increase in in justice and development. That's where most of the money is tilting at this point. And I get it because gospel proclamation is controversial and justice is not. But we're Christians. They should go together together. We have to be word and deed people. Do justice, but do it in the name of the Lord, right? At GBC, we will not neglect justice. It's vital, but we cannot neglect church planning and evangelism. Okay, I I should close. Last point, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, the last part of verse 20. Behold, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promised his attending presence to his disciples as they made disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. Wherever, whenever the church goes, Jesus will be there with his people, empowering them. And at the very beginning of the Great Commission, we saw it's given in the context of worship, but we also saw it's given in the context of doubt, right? They're all gathered together, they're worshiping, and some of them doubted, we're told. I suspect that many of you are thinking, take the gospel to the nations? I barely made it to church this morning. Maybe some of you are thinking, 
Well, that, that was probably easy for the disciples. They saw Jesus. It's harder for me. And I would say, you're right. It is harder for us. Jesus knew that. That's why with Thomas, remember, that when Thomas wanted to touch him, I won't, I won't believe until I see it with my own eyes and put my finger in his side. And then when he sees Jesus, <laughs> he like falls down on his face and says, I believe, I believe. And, and, and the words of the Lord to, to Thomas are, boy, you, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who are going to believe but never see. Right? So Jesus gets it. It's hard. It's hard for us. But the church does not and has never moved forward on the strength of perfect faith. And Matthew 28 should give us great confidence in that. That same group of disciples, some of whom doubted, took the gospel to the nations. And we are here today because enabled by the Spirit of God, they swallowed their doubts and fears and faithfully, courageously shared the gospel with people. See, Jesus isn't looking for rock star, perfect Christians. He's looking for a little faith in the presence of those doubts, a little courage in the presence of those fears, and Jesus will move the church forward. The one who has all authority in heaven and earth said, I will build my church. All we're doing is we're hitching our cart to the sovereign horse, if you will, Jesus Christ. He will make it happen. He will move the church forward. And that should be a great comfort. Should lead us to great confidence. Jesus' mandate to go and make disciples is framed by his personal affirmation of his unlimited authority and his real personal presence. The making of disciples is not a clever idea that ensures the perpetuity of the church. It's not, making disciples is not just like a possible mission strategy. It's not even plan A. It's just the plan. It's the plan. Churches that don't have the making of disciples by going, baptizing, teaching at the center of their missions program are not listening to Jesus. We at GBC, we will listen to Jesus. We have to demonstrate through our actions that we believe disciple-making to be a royal and divine summons, a command to be joyfully obeyed. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, this, this command to make disciples, it feels way above our pay grade. How, how can we do that? Father, we ask that you would give us faith and you would give us courage and confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we, as a demonstration of love and of worship, be faithful. Make us faithful, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.